Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Julie Barr. You may recognize her name because she's been on the podcast before. Uh, the title of that podcast is One is Too Many, uh, None is Enough, One is Too Many, Something Enough. Anyway, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, that first episode that we did with Julie went almost two hours long. It could have went five hours. It was so much fun. Uh, please click it, listen to it, because in that episode, you'll get her backstory of her addiction, um, depression, suicidal uh, ideations. And now that in this part two, we're going to find out where Julie Barr is now and how she's moving forward. This is a great episode. Check out Julie Barr. I I'm excited to have you back on. And for the listeners, uh, Julie Barr is a comedian, works on cruise ships. That's how we met. And uh, she was one of my first guests. We, we were in my, and I think it was in your cramped uh we were in our <laughs> we're in our cruise ship rooms recording and uh it yeah. went for two hours it could have went for another 10 hours i had so I much fun and uh and i'm excited to have you back on and i was like wow i wonder you know i've had so many great guests on i was like what's going on now what's you know because always like you know you are like in your 60s and i'm in my 40s and there's nothing i love more than um like, where are they now? Like, with the old sitcoms I used to watch? <laughs> yeah, I'm hanging out with J.J. Walker. In, uh, not at all. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I have to tell you that uh, when I hear you say you're in your 40s and I'm in my 60s, it is the most bizarre concept in the world, time. And what that really means and it it's so fraught with meaning for and it's an individual case by case basis you say 40 to somebody or 60 to somebody and it just opens up this pandora's box of thoughts and fears and worries and wishes and details 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 absolutely i had i was reading about you know, suicide and why people end their lives. And there's, I forget they have a name for it. There's a fear of getting older. Right. And there's a specific name. And there, there was a, a woman who, uh, you know, unfortunately ended her life. And part of it was, you know, and she was 40 and she was just like, I'm getting old um, and didn't want to get older. And I think I remember as a kid having a fear of being old and looking back, I realized that the old people in my life that I saw as a child were all like dependent, decrepit, deflated, like broke down. They were, they were not these aspirational green smoothie drinking, cycling, <laughs> uh, doing <laughs> yoga, mountain climbing, surfing. They're not the old people of today are not the old people I grew up with. Well, that's interesting because I had the opposite experience. I grew up with um, I knew both my great grandmothers into their hundreds, almost 100. And both my grandmothers 
authors who worked and lived until they were in their late 80s. My grandfathers, unfortunately, uh, transitioned out at earlier times. But I grew up uh, really understanding that there was no limit to age was not a limiting factor. Although I must say, my grandmother, so I was born in 58, and my grandmothers were born in the early 1900s. And they didn't look like these grandmothers. Um, they still wore dresses or suits, very rarely pants. They didn't drink a lot of water. They certainly weren't out exercising. Um, they, uh, they, you know, they couldn't be in a Pepsi commercial for sure, um, except sitting in a corner somewhere playing cards. But their attitude about life, they worked. My one grandmother, my uh, paternal grandmother, worked as a nurse until she was 84. And my maternal grandmother worked as a librarian until she was almost 85. So I had a very different view of being aging into, you know, in the world. So share with me, Julie, when I said I'm in my 40s and you're in your 60s, what did that bring up for you? Well, uh, I loved my 40s. They were fun. You know, Leo, the interesting thing about age, if if I might say, see, when when I speak with you, I don't think you view me as I'm an older person. Uh, you have to treat me differently or act differently around me. Um, but the people, my peers the people in my in the in the 60s at late 50s and 60s they are the people who have problems and um misinformation about being in their 60s every i have so many friends who have this running dialogue or monologue about they're old they can't do what they used to do um they uh, feel limited. They feel worried. Um, and I just look at them and think, how did you get so old? Um, and what I've realized is the more, the, the less they expand in their lives, physically, geographically, um, spiritually, um, intellectually, the, the, the smaller they make their world, the more worried and um, hooked on age um, limitations they are. Wow, that, that's fascinating because one of the things that I've just started writing, you know, every now and again, I, I, I have a new mantra for my life. And one of my current mantras is to expand, experience, and explore. Because I, oh, I realized so good. I was in that space of contracting, isolating, and, you know, just kind of hiding from the world. And I was like, I want to expand, you know, the different types of books that I read and places that I go and, and kind of go off track a, a little bit there. Have you always ha kind of had this uh, uh, need or desire to explore and expand? 
Yes, in that, um, which ties in with the subjects of suicide ideation. When you feel vulnerable, or I'll speak for myself, when I have felt vulnerable, um, having fear, doubt, insecurity, you do make yourself smaller. And you kind of close in because of that uh, sensitivity to your own vulnerability. I always say this to people when they're suffering from whatever they're suffering from. You know, when animals are hurt, they don't go to a bar and get a bunch of drinks and talk to the other animals about their angst and their worry and their nervousness. They don't go online and uh, post pictures. They, you know, if an animal is vulnerable, it finds a safe and sort of closed in place in their environment, in the woods or in the mountains or wherever they are. And they just sort of hunker down and heal. And I think when I meet people and in my life, when I have felt all of those things, worry, doubt, fear, my world starts to close in because of that sensitivity to my vulnerability. And I think that's what's going on globally um, with so many people. They really are worried and nervous and fearful. And so they're just closing off their world. Has that been your experience? I think I've I've definitely went through that phase in my 30s. I think I spent a lot of time just in my room. You know, I would go do shows, come back to the room. I'd go to the movies, come back to the, my room. But I was I was really going from one safe cave to the next. Right. Right. Like it was right. just all these tiny spaces where I really didn't have to be seen unless I was on stage. And even on stage, when I think about the material I was doing and the way I was performing, it was it was performative uh, versus conversational and, and right. vulnerable and taking the chance of letting people in. Right. When, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time on cruise ships and uh, I so I meet as we do, we meet thousands of people. We have the opportunity. We don't meet every single one of them. Thank God, because that would be exhausting to get to know, you know, 5,000 people every week. But I, I speak to a lot of people. Um, I'm outside a lot on deck. Um, and the thing that I'm interested in is listening to people's experiences and, and, you know, where they're from and, and what they've been up to. And what I see is it's way more difficult and challenging for people who do live an isolated life to then spring out on an, you know, through airports, on an airplane, uh, to a cruise ship where it's fast and furious, noise, sound, stimulus, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, they have the hardest time. And when you speak with, when I speak with them, I, I listen to them and the people who have the most difficulty are the people who never really venture 20 miles off away from their homes. They 
grew up in the town that they still live in. They met and married somebody in close proximity, whether in high school or whatever. They work at a job in their town. They go to the same church. They go to the same Applebee's. They go to the same, you know, American Legion to drink on Friday nights. And they only know people who look like them and think like them. They don't know any kind of diversity because they're living in smaller towns or smaller cities. And they, I really, I get the feeling that they're afraid. And I'm, that's been a curiosity to me. When I left my home in Rochester, New York, when I was in my 20s to move to Boston and do stand-up comedy, I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything preset. And every single one of my peers said, what, what you're, you're going where, and you're going to do what, and you don't have a job and you don't know where you're going to live. And I was like, yeah, I said, I'll, I'll be all right. I'll find something. But it was terrifying to them to move away from that space into the abyss as far as they were concerned. And this was only in the 80s. This wasn't in the 1780s. I didn't say I'm going to go to California, which hasn't even been thought of yet um, from, you know, from the East Coast. I just went to Boston. I didn't go to the moon. But it was it it really threw them for a loop. And do you know that two of my closest friends, they have never left that that place. And when I go back to see them, one of them is drunk all the time and the other looks like she's my grandmother and she's younger than I am. It's fascinating how our experiences or a lack of can age us. I mean, there there's old in terms of age, but there's really there's also old in terms of your spirit and your soul. Right. How have you right. been expanding, exploring intellectually? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the thing that has been interesting to me is how much of the planet. Um, First of all, how much of the planet there really is? I've been really kind of investigating geographical locations. I haven't gone there, uh, but just knowing about them, learning about them, the different species of animals and birds. And I've been really fascinated with birds lately. So I've been reading a lot about uh Audubon and Sibley and all of those people who uh, have been quantifying and identifying birds uh, because they, like bees, connect all of us um, in the globe with each other because they're moving from location to location to location. Uh, other than that, what have I been? I really haven't been reading anything interesting. I I am a visceral learner. I like to be in the experience. How about you? Uh, I've I've been reading everything. Uh, I know. Well, I, say, I love that. I I don't. You know. I think somebody. I had no idea. There's a thing called inattentive. 
attention disorder. And so basically I'm reading maybe 15 books right now. And, <laughs> and when I tell people that they're like, that's so strange, but to me, that's what school was in school. Right. You had to read, you had your, your books for class. You had your textbooks, right? So say right. you're taking five to seven classes. So there's five to seven books right there. And then you have to write a paper in each one of those classes. So now you're reading and, and parsing through hundreds, if not thousands of articles in a semester to, right. to write these papers and books. So for me, it's what I've always been doing. It's almost like it's strange to me when people are, can just read a book. I'm like, <laughs> how do you... How did you get through school if you can only just read one book? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Never in the history of your life have you just been reading one book. So, you know, I, <laughs> with that said, I was, I've been reading, um, I'm trying to humble myself because I, I find myself being a bit too pretentious with my reads. Like I've been reading War and Peace and The Count wow. of Monte Cristo and, Jane Eyre, like going with the classics, the stuff I was supposed to read in high school, and somehow I skipped it. So I was like, you know what? Let me go back to the thrillers. Let me go back to the crime fiction, the Joe Nesbos. Uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, of crime fiction, and I'm so glad I did because in order, I realized in order for them to catch these criminals. They really have to dig deep into the human psyche, right? Yeah. What, what makes people tick, what motivates them, um, what binds them. And what was interesting in this book, The Bat by Joe Nesbo, he was talking about addiction. And anybody who's listened to the old episode or the first episode with Julie Barr, you know that we talked about um, uh you your travel and your journey through addiction and mm -hmm. now how many years sobriety do you have now 33 33 years so i'm going to read you i'm going to read you a part from the bat this is on page 123 and then i i'd, I'd love to get your insights and in, in, into your thoughts on this and and see if this lined up with maybe your experience or or not so okay. joe nesbo uh he has his uh detective harry holy who got drunk and then it resulted in um, him accidentally getting into, he gets into a car crash and it kills a boy and he feels guilty, but he's a cop. So he's able to like get away with it, cover it up. Right. And so, wow. right. And so the person goes like, you know, how did you cope with the, the feelings of it? You, you must've felt like guilty. And he says, quote, so I punished myself instead. I gave myself the worst punishment I could think of. I decided to live and I decided to stop drinking. I got to my feet again and started working. Worked longer than all the others. Trained, went on long walks, read books, some on law, stopped meeting bad friends, good ones too, by the way. The ones I had left after all the boozing. I don't know why in fact it was like a big cleanup. Everything in my life had to go, good as well as bad. Uh, most accepted it. A couple were even glad, I suppose. Some maintained <laughs> I was walling myself in. 
well, they have been right. For the last three years, I spent more time with my sister than anyone else. And I'll end it there. Um, but because what stood out to me was not only did he clean up the, the bad and the people who didn't serve him, but he, he cleaned up the good and he really dug himself into work. Was that kind of the experience for you or did you, was there a different experience for you? Well, th this is, uh, man, I, I'm always fascinated speaking with you because it just opens up so many conversations. Uh, the, this is one of the, this is one of the, the, um, challenges in addiction. So when you're in the throes of addiction, uh, of whatever it is, um, for me, it was alcohol and drugs. Um, that's the only thing that matters. That is priority number one and everything else, um, in the, you know, in the, in the beginning of that, um, it's focusing on your addiction and trying to act as if everything is fine. Uh, you know, trying to hide it from the people who might be suspicious about it. As you progress in your addiction, pretty soon, it doesn't matter if you get caught, you just sort of are going to just do what you're going to do. And the the world be damned um because you know the the thing about addiction uh, and i'll speak about drinking and drugging you take a drink and then that drink takes a drink and so on and so on and so on once you that's the the whole thing once you um start the process then the more progressed you are in your disease the less power you have over making decisions from that point forward. Is that clear what I'm communicating? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that quote where they say, first you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes you. Right. And because in the beginning, um, it's all fun and games, but then pretty, and what I've come to realize in my life. So you're in a bad place. I'm, I'm just going to take a, just a minute here to explain this. In the beginning, before you know you are an addict, because you don't know, and that's the tricky part, and that's why addiction is still on such a moral issue in America particularly, because some people, I, I, you're not an addict, is that correct? I am in AA. I'm on my 11th step right now for sugar. Good. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Uh, that's a that's a great conversation. So okay. So um, when you at first when you at first take a drink, you don't know uh, um, what's about to happen. Some people can take a drink and that's fine, and they never drink again. Other people take a drink, and it starts the chain of pain. And I was in that category. I had, you know, I, I kept saying, I'm not going to be an alcoholic like my parents. I'm going to control this. Well, ha, ha, ha. Good one, Julie. Um, <laughs> do you have another bright idea? Um, and so I, I was off and running. And pretty much from that point forward, I, I wasn't in charge. The, the substances were in charge. And that's all I thought about. That's all I 
worked about. That's, you know, I just went around and around and around. So then you, um, you're in the midst of your addiction and you get to the point where it doesn't even matter if people think you're an addict because you just have to get high. There's that desperation. I just have to be high because it's the only place that I feel safe. Then hopefully you get to a place where you think, okay, I have screwed up my life. I have to get clean and sober. And all of a sudden, like this author is talking about, you get to this place where crap, shit has gone down. Uh, hopefully not as extreme as you have killed somebody else in a vehicular homicide. Uh, and fortunately for me, that never happened. But there are things that happened during my addiction that I had to deal with. And so then becomes the issue, if I had been clean and sober, would I have done those things? Of course not. Usually not. Um, and in my case, no. Um, in the throes of my addiction, I was stealing from people. I was stealing money. Uh, I was lying. Uh, I was involved in affairs with married people. Um, so I was doing behaviors that, you know, I was also involved with drugs, which, you know, all, all of that carrying on. So what I came to realize in sobriety is that I am accountable for the results of my actions, but I am not responsible. Does that make sense? Please break that down for me. Accountable, okay. accountable versus responsible. Okay. So, um, like for the, for example, using that, that story. So if, as a police officer and as a human being, it would, he, in, in sobriety, he wouldn't willfully and knowingly drive a car into an accident and risk the lives of the people, especially a vulnerable child, and kill that person. Um, he, so because he was drinking and drugging and high and whatever, he, he couldn't be responsible for his actions. He didn't have the physical wherewithal to make those key decisions. If you're stark raving sober, and you're on your way to an accident, you are going to act differently than if you're completely in a blind blackout drunk. Physically, you can't react. Um, you can't think as quickly. You probably wouldn't do those kinds of things. However, the result that happened, you are accountable for. You were there. You did those actions. So, um, you have an accountability to deal with the results of it. Were we, were you responsible? No, but are you accountable? Yes. Am I just using the same words to explain the definition of what I'm saying? Uh, no, no, it, it makes sense because, uh, you know, when I look it up, responsive responsibility is more task oriented. Every person on a team may be responsible for a given task accountability is what happens after a situation has occurred. Right. So it's, it's how you respond and take ownership over the results. You know, right now in our country, we have more people in prison. As so many people know, we have more prison 
more people in prison than anywhere else in the world. Um, a lot of that has to do with racism. And most of that has to deal with the fact that possibly, I think the statistics are somewhere 84% of the people in prisons got into prison as a result of drugs and alcohol. There were, you know, that's the big debate that's going on right now. What about all the marijuana arrests that were made over the past several decades? Um, do we keep those people still in prison? Um, that's, you know, that's another kettle of fish to deal with. But so the real issue is, so if I'm drunk and I'm driving and I kill somebody in my drunken behavior, uh, according to the laws of vehicular ma uh, manslaughter or whatever the legal thing is, I'm going to have to do some jail time for sure, because that's, you know, the, it's the law. That's the law that's on the books. However, do I spend that time in a prison or do I spend that time uh, in uh, more of a re rehabilitative sort of situation? I, you know, that's that's uh, that's really um, and something to think about. It's such a challenging thing because one, we have to ask ourselves, why are people doing drugs? Right. Right. If we don't understand the source, I was just reading something this morning about everything has a source. And if right. we don't understand the source of the drug addiction, if we don't understand the source of the you know, why one person is, is stealing from another person, then um, we're just putting band-aids over everything. And we right. know that the recidivism rate is, is high. And, right. and the reason is because they're not, <laughs> you know, we, we call them correctional facilities, but they're just, you know, holding facilities that we're not really right. correcting behavior. Um, and so one of the things that, that is, I know it's popped up through my research is when they arrest and separate, you know, the, the children from the home, they arrest one parent, you know, for drugs or some trumped up charge, a small charge, he gets arrested for a misdemeanor. It's, it's really, we're looking at um, a domino effect of things. You get arrested for a misdemeanor and that arrest, that time away from home, from family, has such a cascading effect, meaning right. you have to miss work, right? Um, you have to now use money that you probably don't really have. Most people are living paycheck to paycheck, right? right. So you're right. already living paycheck to paycheck. You get arrested for a misdemeanor. And so you have to pay bail out of what was probably going to be your rent money. And now you get fired because you didn't show up for work, right? We, we have a, we, there's, there's always somebody who's, who's ready to take your job, ready for you to mess up. So now you've lost your job and you have a family to feed. What are you going to do? Your car has been towed probably because now you can't make the car note. So this, this one misdemeanor, you, you know, you, you stole a snicker, you got caught with a, a bag of weed, which is now legal. And, and now you are paying 10 to a thousand X for it. 
because you were, you were already, you know, on the lines or sometimes, you know, you get arrested because, you know, in my case, I was, uh, I was arrested when I was in high school and I was with the wrong people. Um, you know, I didn't know what they were into. So we got arrested and my parents had to bail me out and, um, and I, I couldn't prove my innocence. So I ended up, uh, having to serve community service, but I almost went to jail just cause I was right. hanging out with people who had did a thing that I was unaware of. So, you know, we have to look at not just, are we holding people accountable for their behaviors? Or are we really like over punishing? We're over punitive. Right. Um, you can't just destroy a person's life uh, it, in most of these cases. We can't get everybody to agree on one thing. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And at all times in our lives, in the world, there will always be people who are succeeding and there will always be people who are not succeeding. I don't want to say failing. There will always be poor people. There will always be rich people. There will always be sick people. There will always be well people. There will be high people, sober people. All of that will always be in existence. The only thing that we have control over is our individual lives. And if we are uh, actualized, um, self-contained um, humans, then we have something to contribute to the planet. But if we are, if we are, are we, if we don't have that ability, we have nothing to offer anybody. It's kind and really in the long run and in the end, we can only be lighthouses for each other. I can't come into your life and make your life better. Um, I could give you money. I could give you food. I could give you a place to live. I could give you books on philosophy. I could sit with you for hours and hours and hours. But I can't make you do any of that. And if that isn't, if you're not up to speed with all of that stuff, it will dissipate soon anyway. Does this make sense? Yeah, I like this idea of being a lighthouse. Like I can show you the way, but I can't bring you to the lighthouse. You have to want to come. You have to be willing to want to come to the lighthouse. You have to be capable of making it to the lighthouse. Uh, but I can just in, be the lighthouse. I can't pull the boat to the lighthouse for you. I can't I can't swim from shore to the lighthouse. You have to put in that work if that's something that you're willing to do. But I can show you that there is a lighthouse. So, I mean, in all of these situations, you know, that I think has been one of the confusions about um, the social media. People look on social media and they see, like, say, for example, if I look at social media and I see a 60-something-year-old woman, white woman, uh, with pink hair, living her life, and I start comparing myself to her based on those superficial comparisons, I'm screwed because I'm not her 
She is not me. I'm not living her life. She's not living my life. She hasn't had the experience up to this point that I have, and I haven't had her experience. But if I am feeling vulnerable or insecure or in doubt, and I use that um, as I should be, I should be doing this. I, if I only had this amount of money, if I only wore this makeup, if I only had this boyfriend, if I only did this, you know, if I only had a brain, if I only had a heart, if I only had courage, I could have all of these things that she has. And that is a flawed premise that, I mean, yeah, you can get that makeup and you can, you know, be that, do that diet and wear those clothes, but that does not guarantee anything. And we keep putting these standards on people like, um, well, if you live this life, you'll go to heaven. Or if you live this life, you'll be rewarded. Or if you, you know, don't be so selfish, help these people out. It's, it's, we sort of are, are cutting our noses off to spite our faces and we're giving people, um, uh, standards to live up to that are impossible. And it's the same with all of our subjects that we've talked about, prison, addiction, suicide ideation, intellectual abilities. Every You can find people that you resonate with, but um, it can't be your, um, it can't be your self-esteem. It can't be your ego. It has to be, you know, I'm going to take care of myself and get myself together. And when I walk out into the street and you and I meet each other and we have a conversation and we resonate, uh, that is fantastic. But if we don't, what happens and we each do this, then we try to make the other people wrong or bad or push against them in some way, which is what's happening politically in our country, which is happening socially in our country. If you don't look like me or think like me or act like me, then you're wrong. You're bad. You're misinformed. And that is inaccurate. You can have your opinions. You can look like you want to look like. Um, you can do what you want to do, and I can do the same. Our diversity is really how this universe goes around and around and around. But it, it, does this make sense to you? So wh what I'm trying to say is that I think instead of uh, trying to find agreement and consensus on what needs to be done, the agreement needs to be you take care of yourself. You get yourself in the best place that you can be. And I will do the same. And where we meet in agreement is fantastic. And where we meet in disagreement is also fantastic. Will Smith talked about that with uh, Jada Pinkett saying that, you know, when they first got married, he said, we are not responsible for each other's happiness. We are Correct. responsible for our own happiness. 
and and that was it was really shocking for me to hear that because you know I hadn't grown up with that. I was I kind of grew up with this message of uh, codependency and and taking care of other people and me too um, and thinking that that's how it, you know it's supposed to be and and this idea of like learning how to take care of yourself uh, and if you learn how to do the same thing then it's then it's like two superpowers coming together and it and it's right. not easy and and i don't i don't and and you know i don't know how you feel but i feel like that's not a linear necessarily like a linear process there i would imagine there are points of ebb and flow of where i where one may be surrendering themselves to the other person there may be episodes of codependency and and then episodes of of independence and self-actualization um i mean ideally i guess you would want to be this person who is uh tending to your own self-interest but i would imagine that there are there are periods uh you know due to circumstances or or just even energetically of surrendering and giving over to this other person and then coming back to yourself it's kind of like i think of it of like playing baseball right you have home base. And so when you are tending to your self-interest and, and, and your needs and what, what motivates you and drives you, uh, that's, that's, that's when you're, you hit home base. But you, you do have to circle the bases. You got to go to first, second, third. You, get, you almost have to expand and check in on other people. And maybe you get caught up in some codependency or, uh, and, and other things. And, but it's that knowing how to get back to yourself. For me, that's what meditation is a practice in is, right. you know, my thoughts start to wander. And then, uh, but instead of me freaking out and being like, oh, why am I thinking about this? I know how to come back to myself when I'm ready. Um, there, there's, I, but I think there has to be like this ebb and flow of losing yourself uh, at moments. Uh, but not, you know, it's like Icarus. You don't want to fly too close to the sun. You don't want to fall. In, I think that's where the addiction is, is where you lose yourself to a thing and then that thing becomes the only thing versus recognizing like this was a nice place to visit, but not to stay. Well, this, the, the most interesting thing about that, I love your baseball analogy. Um, the, uh, the interesting thing about codependency because I was totally raised that way. I was raised to, I was the oldest of four children in a very dysfunctional alcoholic based environment. And especially um, the oldest child in any family and predominantly girls, uh, <clears throat> the way it's been historically is the parents are having children and you're the first one. And so any ensuing children, you must take responsibility for. I mean, you know, that's that's Irish Catholicism 101, you know, especially in the Irish Catholic families, they would have 10 or 11 kids and the oldest uh, girl would always be in charge. And I mean, that's always been the way that the older kids take care of the younger kids because the parents can only do so much. Um, so I was raised and, you know, if I had upset feelings about things, 
that didn't that didn't jibe with my parents. You can't have your own feelings. Uh, <laughs> beatings will continue until morale improves. That was sort of the the way that uh, the philosophy of raising children that I was raised in. And so, and then I constantly was looking outside myself for validation, for love, for um, esteem. And that's really what codependence is. Codependence is I need you to make me feel whole. And so no matter what you need, no matter what I have to sacrifice, I will do that so that you will love me so that I will feel good about myself. And that is such a flawed premise because, as I said, you can't make anybody stand on their head in as many ways as is needed to make you feel good. And we sort of, uh, you know, the other day my mom said to me, this was a couple months ago, she said, your brother is breaking my heart. And I said to her, that's impossible. He's not standing on your chest, beating you. I said, you are using, you are observing the actions of his life and you are using those actions as a reason to feel badly. He has nothing to do with it. He is doing his life. He's making his own decisions. He's having his own behaviors, but you don't like those, you feel badly about those. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you are using the observation of his life as an excuse to make yourself feel badly. And that's really the codependency that we all have with each other. You have to behave in a certain way so that I will feel better about my life. That's what codependency is. But if if you are in a healthy place and I am in a healthy place and it's not perfect. I mean, we're not, there's no such thing as an idealized world, but even in a relationship, if I'm having a tough day and you're having a tough day, then it's really up to each of us to improve it for ourselves and then start contributing to each other. I don't have anything to give you if I am in a bad place and vice versa. And I think that's the the flawed premise we all live with. You know, um, everybody has to do what we, you know, we think they should do so that we'll feel better. And it's never going to happen. Even when you even when you stand at an altar and say, you know, I will love you through sickness and health and uh, money and no money and until the end of time. That is ridiculous. Nobody can make that promise to anybody ever because things change. Life changes. People grow. People change. And so it's the same thing. You know, our kids have to go to school. They have to maintain these grades. They have to get a good job. They have to marry the right person in order for us to be happy. This is ridiculous. You 
as a politician, you have to do everything I want you to do, or else I don't want to have anything to do with you. That That's what codependency is. Julie, we could talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> Has it been and six hours already? It's been six hours already. Uh, I had three last questions. One is, yeah. last time we talked, we talked about your nephew and how he was one of your reasons to keep going. Yeah. How is he doing right now? He's amazing. He is uh, 30 years old. He is uh, working. I don't know where he's working, actually. Uh, but he has a girlfriend he loves very much. He has a dog and a cat. He is happy and sparkling. And uh, he just had his birthday uh, a couple weeks ago. And I was talking to him and I just said, you know, the day you were born is the day that I decided to stick around. And I'm very, very appreciative that I did. He's doing great. Thanks for asking. And penultimate question. Penultimate is now one of my new favorite words because I I'm love it. Because I'm expanding intellectually, as as Julie mentioned earlier. Um <laughs> I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Uh, I would, if there's someone listening right now who's thinking, um, I have no more options. And I think that's really what the, the question is. What are my options and what can I do to make things differently? Um, I would say to reach out to someone you love. You know, I was watching, I just have to say this, I was watching Maria Bamford. Uh, Maria Bamford, a comedian. Are you familiar with her? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I love her. And she was uh, doing a, a keynote speak. Uh, speech at an OCD conference. And one of the things that she talked about was um, these intrusive thoughts that take over. And I think that's really the situation. You, the times that I wanted to, I thought that killing myself was the ideal. It was because my life I I didn't feel like I wanted to feel and my life didn't look like I wanted it to look like. And I didn't know how to get out of that situation and I didn't know how to feel differently. And so I was sort of in this loop, this open-ended loop of the same conversations, the same thoughts, the same. So I think what really if you really don't want to kill yourself, but you don't know what else to do, put all of your current thoughts and feelings in the light of day and with the observation of someone who doesn't share those thoughts. In other words, speak to a friend whom you admire, speak to someone um, who has the ability to say, is this really what you think? 
And is this really true? That's what I would say. I love that. It's almost like find somebody who can mirror back what you're saying uh, to see if that's how, so you can kind of zoom out and get perspective. Uh, absolutely. Because when you're in pain, uh, you're, you just want to get out of that pain. Uh, but you're in pain. So it's sort of that philosophical, the question and the answer aren't in the same place. You know, if you ask a question, the answer has to be in the opposite place. If you just keep asking the question, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um, you you can't see the answer. So you have to move to a new place. You have to get a, an outside perspective, e even if it's um, just to write it down and say, is this really true? Is Do I have no more options? Is this the best it's going to be? And uh, if you can get some help, and really that's that's the, that's the key. I love that the questions and the answers aren't in the same place. And then last question, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours, Julie Barr? <laughs> in the next 24 hours, <clears throat> uh, I am, uh, I'm going down to outside of Boston to take care of my brother's dogs. He has two dogs and two cats. Uh, he and his family are going on vacation. So I'm going to be in puppy world uh, for the next uh, 24 to 96, I don't know, how many days? Uh, several days. So I'm going to be with dogs. And that to me is a very happy place to be because it breaks life down very simply. Eat, play, pee, Love me, love me, love me. Eat, play, pee. Love me, love me, love me. Eat, play, pee. Love me, love me, love me. And that's that's our life you can handle, right? Well, thank you for playing with us, Julie Barr. Thank you for <laughs> tuning in. Remember, listening to this Leo. podcast is not a substitute for calling to get help. Call that 988 or any of the other 800 numbers that are listed in the show notes. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Julie. I love you, Leo. Thank you. I love you.